All right. So we have transitioned from Jesus addressing the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We entered last week into what we see in Revelation 4 as the throne room. And as we opened chapter 4 of Revelation, we saw that John was taken to a place and shown even more incredible visions that lead up to what we are going to see after the visual of what heaven or the throne room looks like. And so last week as we opened Revelation 4, we did not get very far. We made it through just two verses of Revelation chapter 4. I mentioned last week, and I won't go into a ton of detail about this again today, but I mentioned last week the thoughts that are placed in these opening verses, um, starting in verse 1 of Revelation 4. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard had, had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And then in verse 2, it, John tells us that at once I was in the Spirit. And so th this opening verse has been the surrounding of what we understand from a theological perspective, a doctrinal perspective, taking this particular verse and coupling it with some thoughts and coupling it, coupling it with other verses of Scripture from different places, uh, specifically in the writings of Paul, we know this as what we believe to be the rapture of the church. Now, I've said throughout, I 100% believe in a rapture of the church. I believe the church is going to be raptured. We are going to be called up into the clouds to meet Jesus. But what I have a problem with is believing that Jesus is going to call us up before the devastating events that are about to take place. The reason I have a problem with it is because I can't fathom why God would tell us in Revelation what is about to take place if it doesn't actually pertain to us. And I mentioned that in the message last week. And so we generally take that first statement that is made by what some people say is Jesus. What I taught last week, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to John because the voice that he heard at first in, in Revelation 1 and the voice that's heard here is said to be a different voice than the voice that speaks when he identifies Jesus and Jesus begins to talk. We know that because he says, this is the voice that I heard at first. And he said, this voice sounded like the voice of a trumpet. And so the voice that tells him to come up here is the Holy Spirit. And he says, at once I was in the Spirit. And then as he is thrown into that place, it immediately takes us into what we're going to look at this week. That first little portion of what John sees when he comes up to meet the Holy Spirit where 
He is. Now, why again do I say this is the Holy Spirit? Because everything that is spoken from this voice in this perspective is doing one thing. And I said this last week. The Holy Spirit's sole purpose is to point people to Jesus. And when you get into the vision of what we're seeing, there's a vision of John saying, and I'm going to read this in just a moment. I saw a throne and someone seated on it. Now we know based on what transpires over the next two chapters, we know who's seated on that throne. John knows, but has a hard time articulating who's seated on that throne. But it's not the voice coming from the throne that is speaking to John. So once again, we have a picture of not Jesus speaking, but the Holy Spirit showing John what is about to take place. And so as we continue through Revelation 4, starting with verse 2, John says, At once I was in the Spirit. It says, There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have being. So we talked a bit about John's statement about being in the Spirit last week. And how important that understanding is in order for us to recognize what John is seeing and about to describe to us. There's a lot surrounding a statement like this and what that entails. And so for now, my intention is just to kind of ignore the modern take on being in the spirit. Because we've modernized and hijacked what being in the spirit means. You see videos all the time. I've been in events in different places where being in the spirit has become something that is completely Utter nonsense is the best way for me to put it. The falling over in the floor and shaking around like a fish out of water who can't breathe. The uncontrollable nature of 
speaking in tongues and not being able to have the belief that you are in your right mind whatsoever. Here's the problem with all of those thoughts. When John says that he's in the spirit, it brings clarity about what's going on around him. He can't fully describe because of the magnificence of what he's seeing, but it brings clarity. It doesn't bring confusion. I've sat in events where I've seen young people who have been brought up in this, this movement of belief that as soon as the first guitar chord strikes in a worship gathering, it's time to fall out on the floor babbling in tongues and as soon as the music stops, I get up and start scrolling through my phone again like nothing happened. That is, that is so not what the Bible teaches about being in the Spirit. It brings a refreshing. It brings clarity. It shows us deeper truths about ourselves, about what's going on around us, and some of the utter nonsense that we see in society today is just strictly show and it's false and you need to be very careful about how you approach the thought process behind what it means to be in the spirit every time it's used there is clarity and so when we see what's going on in this situation where John has been called up and it says that immediately he was in the spirit, we ask ourselves a question. If all of the modern stuff is what being in the spirit is all about, how would John have time to recall anything that's going on around him? Not just recall it, but in great detail, be able to tell you and I the truths that are housed in Revelation that Jesus gives John, while he is in the Spirit. So it's got to be more than just an emotional, overwhelming moment. It's got to be more than something that makes you want to run around the room and wave your banner and flap your wings and fly. Am I saying there's no place for emotion in worship, absolutely not. Don't hear that. When we're in a mode of worship in the spirit, you should be moved. There should be moments where you're moved to laughter and joy. There should be moments that you're moved to tears and repentance. There's, there, are, there are absolutely valid emotions that go along with being in the spirit. But to take it and turn it into something that has just become and utter nonsense. John just kind of dashes all of that. John is in the spirit. And in relation to what we are about to see. He does everything. With the faculties of that spirit. To describe in detail. What he felt. What he experienced. What he sees. What he hears. And still has a very hard time. Trying to articulate it. Because it's just such an overwhelming sight. And so we, do, we don't need to discount what is being said. Now remember, John's already had this moment. I've already mentioned this. But in, John, in, in John's case in Revelation 1, verse 10, it says that he hears his voice the first time. It says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So he was already in the spirit. Then he heard this voice. Now here in Revelation, it says that he heard the voice and was in the spirit after the fact. So what's, what's really the difference? Because, you know, we know that as believers, we are vessels of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, there are moments that even the Apostle Paul mentions that the Holy Spirit works about in us that even our utter groanings God can interpret because we can't even put words out there. It's that spirit that wells up inside of us in grief and in joy and in proclamation of the gospel that allows us to even articulate to God things that we can't fathom in the midst of pain and struggle. And so here John says that the same voice is speaking and then he was in the spirit. We remember the voice that he hears from Revelation 1.10. And in both instances, the word used for spirit is the same, but it doesn't just mean... Holy Spirit. It says that he was in the Spirit. He was in the pneuma is the word that is used there. But the lack of the word holy doesn't mean that he was in the quote Holy Spirit the way that we would interpret that in a context such as our own. And so we see John stating that he's in such a deep spiritually contemplative state that he is completely in tune in worship, prayer, contemplation, and heightened understanding of what's going on around him that the first instance he was able to hear the voice of the Spirit and remain there to see what the Spirit describes to him and what we now know in Revelation chapter 1 to be the person of Jesus Christ. And then in the second instance, not only do we have John remaining in the spirit, but we have John saying once again that he was taken to an even higher level of awareness and consciousness in the spirit so that he he was able to not only hear the voice but begin to describe beyond just Jesus the events that are about to take place and the room that we know in Revelation 4 as the throne room. It draws us to think upon the same thought process and the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament and why the Spirit is so important in even our understanding of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because what we have pictured in a modern context, what we've been, the painting that's been drawn for us is that it's simply this. We hear about Jesus and we acknowledge Jesus and we're saved. It is belief that brings us into relationship, but it's not belief that actually brings us into relationship because throughout the scriptures, you and I are not able in our own fallen, sinful state, physically, mentally, and emotionally, we're not able to fully spiritually comprehend what Jesus has done for us. And it is necessary 
for the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf. And it's been like that from the beginning. From John's own words in his gospel in John chapter 6, John said that this is what Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, when is this last day? I think John's describing it for us in Revelation chapter 4. He's giving us a glimpse of what that last day is going to look like when we stand before Jesus. But we have to go a little deeper and ask ourselves a question. And how does the Father draw you and I? Well, John continues later on in John 15, verse 26. He says, When the Helper comes, whom I, Jesus speaking here, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. What does that look like? Well, Let's go back to the modern thought process. It's a warm and cozy, confirming feeling. Like when I come to Jesus, it's just to affirm who I am. That I come in just as I am and He accepts me just that way. Not a full truth because it's not what actually transpires as John continues to, to describe the gospel presentation in its totality throughout the Gospel of John. In John 16, 9, it actually says, Jesus speaking once again, when He comes, He being the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That sounds contradictory to the warm and fuzzy, cozy feeling of confirming who I am and Jesus just loving me all the same. Jesus proved his great love for humanity by dying for humanity. Not to affirm what you've done, but because the sin in your life requires a sacrifice. It's God's way. Jesus knew that it was the Father's way. And in order for you and I to be brought back into proper alignment in relationship with the Father, the Father draws the terms. In every culture, it is the man that proposes to the woman. The husband takes a bride, not the bride taking a husband. The church is constantly throughout Scripture telling you and I that the church is the bride of Christ. Christ made the proposal. The Holy Spirit carries the proposal to you and I. All we do is accept the invitation into relationship. John lays this last thought out throughout Revelation. Like Jesus is going to once and for all do something about sin, whether we want to hear it or not. The righteousness that is on display in these first few chapters demands an end to sin. It's clear Revelation is pointing not to all of these crazy cool events. Even in the throne room, we get so hung up on the rainbows and the jaspers and the rubies and the emeralds and the 24 elders and the, 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 the sea of glass and the lightning and the thunder. And the whole point of it is, is it's all surrounding the central figure of the room. And that figure seated on that throne is Jesus. 
And we find out that as John continues, not only in Revelation, but in his gospel, he continues to try to tell us that as he's brought into that heavenly realm, we can confirm everything John already said the Holy Spirit would do in the gospel here in Revelation. The first thing that John is drawn to, that the Holy Spirit draws him to, is a heightened awareness of the throne and someone sitting on it. It's the Holy Spirit's sole role and function. We know the throne, or better yet, we know the one seated on the throne quickly becomes the central focus of this portion of John's vision. And so this drew me into a place where I have, I, in all honesty, I've not known which direction to go. Do we go through this like quickly and just talk about each one of these elements? And God clearly took me on a journey to talk about three specific things in this message. The rainbow and the presence of Jasper and Ruby. And so as I began to contemplate that and think about scripture, I know when we think about the rainbow, we know exactly the rainbow and the, the, the promise of mercy and what the scripture teaches. And we also know in a modern context what the world has tried to do with the rainbow by hijacking it and, and making it an abomination because it is a symbol of the mercy of God and humanity wants to trample on that at every opportunity because of the demonic presence of Satan himself in our society. But that's not what was drawn, drawing my attention when we think about the rainbow as it's presented in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. It just says, the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. So the rainbow around the throne is visible, is only visible because of the one who is seated on the throne. Now, why do I say that? I had to, I had to really dig back because it's been a long time since I've been in school. I'm 40 years old, so it's been a long time since I've studied any kind of science, physical or otherwise. And so as I start to think about what this entailed, I realized that the rainbow, the prism that we know as a rainbow is always present in the sky. It's always there. You just can't see it. The reason that you can see a rainbow is because of the presence of rain. And so as you think about this throne in heaven at the central part of the center of the room and all the things going on around it, there's a, a perfect circular rainbow. Not an arc that's, that we look for a pot of gold at one end and try to find the other end. But it, it draws upon the idea and the thought process that the only way that the human eye can see a rainbow is in the presence of rain. Now, it's not just rain, but it's, it's the droplets of rain actually reflect the colors of the rainbow. And so uh, there was one that happened recently. It had rained pretty consistently over the course of the day. Uh, one day uh, last week, I believe, 
And I walked outside and it was still raining in the distance. And I was at just the right angle to see a perfect rainbow going all the way across. You can see the rain pouring and the rainbow that was forming because I could see it. We can't see that unless there's presence of rain and we're in the right position in correlation to the sun so that sun hits the raindrops and then presents the rainbow. And so you've got all of those elements when you think about that. And then you think about where we are in this throne room and the central figure in the throne room is who? The sun. Now scripture confirms and prophesies in Hosea chapter 6 where Hosea is crying out to the Lord and he says, he, he speaks about himself and about the people of Israel and he's trying to, to relate to them and remind them of who they're dealing with and this is so proper to think about Jesus as well. It says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. It's through those spring rains, through the showers of the Lord's presence that we're able to see the beautiful picture of a rainbow, both here on earth and in the presence of the sun while we're standing in the throne room. But it's confirmed in Psalms, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. The presence of a rainbow shows us, once again, like the central point of what John is trying to show people. He went through painstaking detail with what Jesus said about his seven churches, about seven churches that represent seven church ages, that represent seven different issues that every individual faces. You can name it, you can claim it, you can say it however you want to. He went through all of that detail to now be brought into the presence where you don't have an option any longer to try to fix what Jesus said you needed to fix in Revelation 2 and 3. And it's pointing to the one seated on the throne. The second thing that I believe God would have revealed to me to reveal to you was the presence of Jasper and Ruby. Now, the wording and phrasing of this actually makes it appear as if what John is trying to relay is that the one who sat there looked like this. But what John goes on to say is that the, it's such a brilliant picture and it's so bright and vibrant that this is the only thing that I can make out. I can make out the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. And this was interesting to me because we tend to think that Jasper and Ruby are both precious stones, but that's not the case. Uh, if you really go back and do any kind of uh, scientific study on rocks and precious stones and things of that nature, you find out that Jasper is actually a pretty common Basically rock. 
So the literal definition of a jasper is a silica-rich sedimentary rock that has been subjected to intense pressure and heat over time. Now, the silica-based mineral is a common mineral found in the Earth's crust. You can find it in things like sand and stone, and it's the base of cement and mortar. You can also find it in a little packet that comes in a pair of shoes when you purchase a pair of shoes. It says silica on it. The point of the silica packet in a pair of shoes when you purchase the shoes is so when they're shipped or when you're transporting them, the presence of moisture in the atmosphere doesn't make the shoes stink. So it absorbs the moisture and those silica inside that packet harden and hold on to it. It's the reason why it's a major part of cement and rock and mortar and it's, it's present pretty commonly all over the place. It absorbs moisture. When it's bonded with other fine particles, minerals, and compressed together, you get the formation of what is known as jasper. Now, what happens is, is the impurities that mix with the silica-based compound, the impurities and the, the, the beautiful coloring, whether it be red or pink or, or, or whatever the colors are from the, the base of the earth, as they compress together, that's what gives the jasper its color and its brilliance. And it even has a, a almost a sparkle to it. I've, I've, I've picked these up before just in just off the ground. And you can pick the rock up and you can hold it up. And there's just a, almost a layer inside of it. And you can see where it kind of sparkles. And it's really cool when you really think about, I just picked this up off the ground. Just a common piece of, of rock. And it sparkles and shines. And so John's visualizing and he sees this and he names it first he sees this jasper and if you if you really think about it what the jasper is doing is it's reflecting the brilliant light of the sun and when you hold like i said you hold that rock up into the sun you can see it glisten and sparkle as if it's got as if it's got uh, confetti or something inside of it and it draws us back to john's first thoughts of Jesus in his gospel in John chapter 1. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Doesn't get much more common than the God of the universe becoming a man, taking on flesh and dwelling among his people. It doesn't get more common than that. And it's so much more than just the commonality and the, the, the common fellowship of humanity with Jesus. It's, it, it goes so much deeper in that with the closest relationship with the Father. And, and John goes on and he says, if you have any confusion about who it is I'm talking about, because this is one of those things that like a lot of people will argue in John chapter 1 that the Word becoming flesh is a problem because he never identifies that as being Jesus. Well, that's not true. In verse 17, he says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the words that he uses here are in correlation to what he's just said about the Son who has come. The Word becoming flesh was Jesus Christ. I've heard this argument. And what did he do? He became. He already was, but in the flesh became the reflection of the true light. 
Just like that common jasper can be held up to the sun and reflect the light of the sun itself. It says in verses 9 through 13, just prior to John identifying Jesus as the word that became flesh, it says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So the one sitting there on the throne has the appearance of Jasper, a common, hard, opaque rock. But he also has the appearance of a ruby which we still know today to be a very precious gemstone worn on jewelry, even in a modern context. A ruby is, is different and is considered a precious stone. It's created in similar fashion to jasper, but it's different material. It's put under extreme heat and pressure. When compressed, oxygen and aluminum atoms turn into corundum. Corundum is an aluminum oxide that commonly forms hexagonal barrel-shaped prisms that are transparent. And so these transparent prisms compress on top of each other in this barrel shape to form what we know as a ruby that allows light to pass directly through it. And depending on the mixture of impurities, generally rubies are red, but rubies can also take on additional coloring depending on that which they are compressed with as the light passes through the beautiful color prism effect such a beautiful sight to see it can be breathtaking and when you think about what john's seeing this this brightness and this light that's reflecting like sparkles off of a jasper and going through like a prism possibly even creating the effect of this rainbow that we see above the throne i don't think it's coincidental that these two stones that john recognizes are also present not only here in Revelation, but also in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 39, when it's describing the breastplate of the high priest, guess what the first and the last stones that are mentioned are? Jasper and Ruby. I think what John's actually seeing is not just the appearance of these things, He's actually seeing Jesus wearing the high priestly garment as the first and the last. As they mounted four rows in Exodus 39 verse 10, they mounted four rows of precious stone on it. The first row was carnelian. The first thing mentioned is carnelian, which translates to ruby. And then in verse 13, on the fourth row, the last thing that's listed is jasper. So John sees these two items and it's really one of those magnificent pictures that it's the only thing that he can describe to you because it's what caught his eye. But isn't it interesting that it's present here and present in the Old Testament in the priestly garment, but it's not just that. You think about the first and the last stones being mentioned and Jesus we know to be First and the last. He's the beginning 
and the end. And there's just there's so much going on trying to point you and I to the one seated on the throne, not just so we'll see him when we are raptured into that place. But for many of us in the room today hearing this so that we can see him now, the Holy Spirit's trying to draw our attention to the throne room and tell us that maybe, just maybe, the throne of our hearts is not where Jesus is seated right now. It's us that's seated there. It's our family that's seated there. It's our job that's seated there. It's, it's our status and our pride and it's all of these other things that are seated there. And so when we look within and we see that throne, all we see is the stuff that really keeps us bogged down and depressed and anxious and keeps us driving off that cliff. And Jesus is just this beautiful picture of a throne room, but those precious stones are also present later in Revelation 21 when John's describing the new city of Jerusalem in 21 verses 18 through 20. He says that the wall was made of jasper. Hard, beautiful, Sparkling cement like rock. The foundations, he later tells us in the latter part of verse 19, was made of jasper. And as he continues to list different elements that are present in verse 20, he tells us that the sixth foundation is ruby. So both of those elements present for all of eternity. But there's another element that I want to point out about these two stones that I think might be most important. They both are formed under intense pressure. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that he was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. Same word. He was pressed beyond measure. If you go and you read that in its entirety. In verse 4 he says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of the splendor that's filling that room that John is standing in is coming from the one on the throne. The one who had all of our sin and our iniquity laid upon him. The one that's endured that pressure and affliction He's been given the right of being seated on the throne by the Father. The awe-inspiring scene that unfolds in these two chapters gives us a glimpse into the throne room where so much is going on that we don't see Him. We're so distracted by all of the other things that are going on around. We want to know about all of the other things that are happening in the room. And all the while, 
the entire purpose was for us to see Jesus. And I dare say, I dare say, the reason that many of us miss it is because we never ask ourselves the question, how do I get a chance to see him? John already told us, I was in the spirit. How do I get there? How do I get there? Ask yourself the question, do I know him? Do I know the one that the spirit's pointing to in that room? Is he the one seated on the throne of my heart? Have I been put in a position where I'm not distracted by all the bright lights and pretty colors? I can just simply see the one that's at the center of the room. I can see the one seated on the throne because he's already been seated on the throne of my heart because the Holy Spirit has revealed him to me and has revealed my great need for him. Is that you? I can tell you if it's you or not. I had a hard time even studying and writing this without the emotions running through of the picture that John is painting for us. It's hard to even put into words trying to describe from my position to you to understand what John is saying. And the reason is, is because it's just an awe-inspiring moment and the only response that we can have when we see this is the same response that the four living creatures and the 24 elders have. The four living creatures, all they can do day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're not saying, look at the pretty rainbow. They're not worried about the others in the room. Folks, we get so distracted by so many little things that get us off of the point. And the point has been and always will be Jesus. All we can do is what they do in the room that day that John describes in the latter portion of Revelation 4, specifically in verses 8 through 11. I want you to see what the elders are doing in verse 10 and 11. It says, The 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so we have a, we have a, a place where we are right now that in order for us to realize what's going on in this room, we have to know him in the room that we sit in today. And if the Spirit is moving among you, calling you unto repentance, do not, according to Scripture, harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion because we are drawing ever so closer to these days being real. And if you're not interested and bowing the knee for all of eternity and saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This may not be for you. But for those of us that hear this message and realize what Jesus has done 
and who's seated on that throne in that immaculate, awe-inspiring picture. Oh, it means everything. And I pray for you that it means everything to you. In repentance and rest is your salvation. So we ask ourselves the question that we ask at the end of every one of these messages in Revelation. Jesus is coming. The question that we need to ask ourselves when he does, is he coming to save me or is he coming to judge me? I pray that the, the one seated on the throne in that throne room is the one that's seated on your heart today. And if he's not, then in repentance on your knees before him, respond to his gospel.